0: Hello and welcome to PainCast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. As I'm leading the National Pain Science Division Student Committee, it is my hope to give more students an opportunity to participate in the episode production process. So today I'm co-hosting with one of the student members from the student committee, Jennifer.
1: Hi, my name is Jennifer, and I am a third-year PhD student studying rehabilitation science, focusing on people with chronic musculoskeletal pain and their psychosocial factors. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Peter Stilwell and Dr. Timothy Whiteman. Dr. Peter Stilwell is a postdoctoral researcher at McGill University in the School of Physical and Occupational Therapy. His research is focused on the topics of pain, suffering, and person-centered care. For the past two years, he was a Ronald Malzick Fellow in Chronic Pain Research at the Alan Edwards Center for Research on Pain at McGill. He was recently awarded the MSCA fellowship from the European Union, which he will start later this year at the University of Southern Denmark. He has a doctor of chiropractic degree from the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College and has worked mostly with people living with persistent spinal pain, and he placed an emphasis on patient education, exercise, and supported self-management. Dr. Say Whiteman is an associate professor at the School of Physical and Occupational Therapy at McGill University. The overarching goal of his research program is to improve the lives of people living with pain. His lab works towards this goal by focusing on three streams of research, including understanding and targeting biopsychosocial risk factors for prolonged pain and disability, improving entry-level pain education for health professionals through large-scale knowledge translation initiatives, and understanding and addressing pain-related suffering. In this episode,
0: we talked about an alternative framework to the biopsychosocial model for a whole-person approach to pain care, how metaphors are commonly used languages to describe pain, and the emerging theoretical research to better understand pain-related
1: suffering. Enjoy! Thank you so much Peter and Tim for being our guest today and welcome to the Paying Cust. Happy New Year. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. Happy New Year. Thanks so much uh, for having me.
1: Awesome. I'm really excited about today's discussion. So before we start, could you please introduce yourselves to let our audience get to know you better? What do you do? What a typical week looks like for
2: you? Peter, why don't you go ahead?
3: yeah yeah for sure um so yeah thanks so much for the invite my name is peter stillwell i'm a postdoc researcher in professor timothy weidman's lab at mcgill so tim's joining us today which is awesome. What a typical week looks like. It depends on, I guess, the time of the year. Changes a lot. Some of the things that I'm involved with is teaching, grant writing, sometimes student supervision, various kind of research related tasks and meetings and conferences, sit on committees. Each week is interesting and a bit different. So yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that.
1: Oh, how about Tim?
2: Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me. Um, My name is Tim Weidman. I'm, I'm a professor at McGill University. I'm a physiotherapist as well. And in terms of my average day or week, I think really similar to what Peter described. One added piece, I guess, is I get the pleasure of revising and working with folks like Peter uh, and other trainees, Um, and that's kind of more or less constant throughout the year, which is one of the, the great pleasures of my work.
1: Great. So what inspired you to focus on this area and begin your research journey into pain and suffering? How long have you been studying this topic?
3: Maybe I'll start and then him, you can go after me if that, that works for you. I, I grew up like skateboarding. I had a skating handrails and stairs and all that fun stuff. So had a variety of injuries and pain. So went through a lot of rehab over the years, saw a lot of different clinicians and ended up seeing some kind of evidence-based chiropractors. And that inspired me to become a chiropractor and work with people living with pain. And then I got more interested in research. I did a bunch of research training, mostly in physiotherapy schools and then I transitioned to just becoming primarily a, a researcher as a postdoc a researcher trainee working in Tim's lab. In terms of like pain, I've been studying that over the last quite a few years, I guess. Suffering more recent though, just with being introduced to Tim's work and him being interested in the topic of suffering, I realized how many gaps I have in in my knowledge about suffering. And so that's been something I've been learning more about through through work with Tim. Yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that
2: yeah, for me, um, it was kind of just a gradual evolution. So my first undergraduate degree was in physiotherapy. and and I was I was doing that, I was just finding that that there was this whole other kind of psychological side of physio that that I just didn't actually feel very well equipped to deal with. So I was finding that working with my patients, there was a need to address that side in terms of motivation, or maybe some apprehension in relation to engagement and activity, but I, I really didn't feel that I had that skill set. And so, it, and that kind of made me interested in psychology. And then really I, in looking for a PhD in psychology, I just stumbled upon Michael Sullivan's work that looked at pain catastrophizing, fear of avoidance, and specifically how that relates to rehabilitation. And for me, that was really just an excellent find. It was just kind of stumbling onto this whole world of pain. And it, it, for me, there's this really nice mix of, of being able to look at that kind of mind-body connection and just being fascinated by that, but also feeling like there was a really practical side of it where we could be helping people. You know, doing research in this space, I think, uh, has a lot of potential to help people to alleviate suffering. And so it's, it just kind of grew from there.
1: Wow, it's a really meaningful work. And thank you all for that wonderful introduction. It's fascinating to hear about your backgrounds and what motivates you. Now, I just cannot wait to delve into our first major topic today. We are going to explore the whole person approach. I'm sure many of our listeners have become more familiar with the biopsychosocial model in the recent years. But is it really the gold standard? So, Peter, some of the work has critiqued the BPS model. Maybe you could highlight some of the limitations and challenges it faces?
3: Yeah, I think a lot of excitement about the biopsychosocial model. And I think it's a really valuable advancement. But a lot of my work, especially during my PhD, I started to look at it quite critically. And I was like, what is actually like the theoretical foundation of the biopsychosocial model as proposed by George Engel. And I quickly realized that a theoretical foundation is quite underdeveloped, it is quite vague. And I started to see what me and some of my co-authors have labeled as misapplications of the biopsychosocial model, which I think partly stems from some of its kind of vague or underdeveloped theories. Some of those misapplications include what some of us have called like biomedicalization of the biopsychosocial models. People talk about taking a biopsychosocial approach, but end up just focusing mostly on biology or things like anatomy or or biomechanics, so taking a bit more of a, a narrow approach. And when psychosocial factors are considered, uh, sometimes people just view them as like modulators or reactions to like biologically generated pain. So in a way, like biology is like privileged. It holds primacy, which isn't quite, I don't think what what George Engel was getting us to kind of think about or move towards. There's also situations where there's like, we've written a bit about this, like there's this barrage of like biopsychosocial questionnaires that can be used with very little patient engagement. So this seems to conflict with Engel's arguments that we really need meaningful interactions with patients we can't just do some sort of research or clinical measurement that's that's not enough so I think this is important because like we see this in like the qualitative literature people emphasizing that just like ticking a box or a zero to ten score isn't really enough to to get at those personal experiences of pain or the ways that that pain has impacted them so I guess in essence that biomedicalization uh, and this kind of quest for like, Personalized biopsychosocial care can easily become depersonalized care if we're not careful. So I guess other uh, misapplications that we've talked about is like the fragmentation of the biopsychosocial model. So it's often kind of split up or or siloed the different domains of biopsychosocial. We've seen this quite prominently in the field of pain, where people have said, if we can't find the source of pain in the body, it must be all in the person's mind, or must be just psychological. And we've argued that's conceptually problematic, but also clinically problematic because I can stigmatize patients and in a way put blame on patients. I guess one more maybe that I could talk about is taking a what we've called like a neurocentric approach to the biopsychosocial model. So saying that you're taking a biopsychosocial model, but maybe getting a little too excited about the brain and the nervous system. So obviously, those are important pieces of the puzzle when it comes to understanding and treating pain. But the more focus that we place on the brain, we may risk kind of overlooking or trivializing non-neural factors, so most prominently social factors that may contribute to the experience of pain. So maybe that's enough <laughs> enough for, for now, yeah.
1: Peter we definitely need to avoid those dualistic and reductionist beliefs and be aware of the interconnectivity and interdependence between these components. And you just mentioned the zero to 10 scale may not be sufficient. So are there any limitations regarding the assessment of pain? for example, how different forms of assessment relate to experience of pain. Team, do you want to add anything?
2: Yeah, so I wrote a paper with the great team a couple of years back called the multimodal assessment model of pain. And in that we situated it in relation to the biopsychosocial model a little bit. And one of the critiques in the biopsychosocial model is that it doesn't really kind of guide us in terms of how to assess. So it talks about the different domains of bio, psychosocial, we should touch on each of those things. But the more you think about assessment, there are different ways, there's different modes that you can kind of approach assessment. And what we were particularly keen on highlighting that paper was how we can get at subjectivity. Like, so if you think about the pain experience, what makes that experience is, is different for, for what it is for me versus you, for everybody that we're, we're chatting with or everybody that we see in clinic. And one of the limitations that I think biopsychosocial model is it doesn't really kind of take us into the situated experience so well. It kind of is focusing on the factors that shape that experience, but it doesn't kind of bring us into that experience. And and so that's where, you know, qualitative discussions. So really just kind of having a conversation with the person about their experience of pain, what it means to them, what it's like for them, how it's disrupted their life. These are the types of things that I think have real richness In terms of then, from a clinician standpoint, being able to understand that and do something helpful about it. And if you think about the richness that a conversation can offer versus a zero to 10 rating, you can kind of appreciate the value of those different kind of modes of assessment, whether we're just kind of giving a number to something, or if we're getting somebody to kind of qualitatively give some depth and and description of that.
1: So with this perspective, can the experience of pain really be observed or measured is there a vast available proxy?
2: I would say no actually. I mean I, or or I would say actually a better answer would be that there's no real way that we can objectively determine if we've nailed it in terms of our assessment. I think the best we can do is ask the person who's living with pain in terms of how well we did with our assessment and how well we've kind of captured that. And I think what I don't want to do is denigrate or stigmatize different forms of assessment. I think using a zero to 10 scale, I think that has a a role and a purpose doing things like mris a barrage of different kind of pain assessments each of those have their purpose but i think that what's important to remember is that those findings from our pain assessment should never be used to kind of negate the self report of pain and it doesn't make sense conceptually to do that because fundamentally as you kind of your first question alluded to like that experience is hidden to us as a clinician or a researcher, and there's nothing that we can do to unhide that, if that makes sense. So I think that's, that's part of the, the humility of of working with pain, which is by definition, a subjective experience.
0: What you two talked about, I resonate a lot with that, When Peter, you talked about the limitations of the biopsychosocial model, although we really want to respect the three, the bio and the psycho and the social, it's just so hard. And oftentimes clinicians resort to, as you said, the bio that takes primary consideration and then the psychosocial, maybe they're like modulating or mediating factors. But in fact, the pain experience is much more than that. I'm curious to see what you think in terms of whether this applies to all types of pain or does it apply to a particular type of pain, how we are conceptualizing and applying the biopsychosocial model. Is there different ways of applying it in different contexts?
3: Yeah, I consider the MAP principles that Tim already outlined to be applicable to all types of pain, considering them all as a, a subjective experience. Tim, I don't know if you wanna build on that, but I think I would see it applicable to all types, yeah. Whether it's nociceptive or neuropathic or cancer-related pain, like nociplastic pain.
2: I think the applicability is certainly there. And, and I think that's the way that that model and those concepts are intended is to apply to all types of pain. You know, I think that there's shortcuts we can take in pain assessment that may or may not cause problems, let's say. And so you can imagine in specific case scenarios where just a really traditional zero to 10 rating of pain, hey, where is it located? What are the qualities of that pain in terms of is it achy? Is it is it burning? And that could be the it for your pain assessment. And for a lot of patients, that won't result in a, in a problem. And so just having a, a narrow scope of your pain assessment, it might not result in a problem. The challenge is that it will result in a problem for some of your patients. And the challenge on top of that is that you don't know which patients <laughs> you're, you're missing something. So what I try to teach my students is to have some kind of baked in comprehensiveness. So you have a bit of a, a wide scope that you start with, and you have a ways of streaming that down when that's appropriate, or even kind of going wider if that's needed for the patient in front of you.
0: I just really appreciate it Uh, i think we need to lay the ground of the context of the discussion like to our audience we're not just talking about persistent recalcitrant pain but when we interact with the patient right away let's take a more comprehensive approach just so we don't miss something
2: exactly you know and, and that can just be just in that opening question like you know what brought you in here is just spending a bit of an extra time listening and maybe probing before diving into the kind of clipboard formula that, that all of us have and when it comes to pain specifically I think it really is adds this kind of like ironic efficiency to be more comprehensive in how we start that conversation to probe in to to some of those spaces that might guess initially a little bit uncomfortable as clinicians to talk about some of the psychology related to pain some of the social context around pain things that we might be less familiar with initially but that can be so pivotal in a lot of people's lives and terms of getting the right care for the right person at the right time.
1: I just feel like um, getting the right care for the right person at the right time is awesome. So thank you for your sharing. Now we understand that the experience of pain is a function of the whole person, influenced by environmental and contextual factors. It is really great that your work keeps advocating for a whole person approach to pain care. Would you like to dive more into this?
3: Yeah, I think what's super interesting is like I was learning a lot about something called inactivism, which very much aligns with a whole person approach if you're applying it to pain. And and I read Tim's work on the map model, like when I was getting towards the end of writing this paper in 2019, and I was like, Oh, like a lot of this like philosophical movement outside the field of the pain, the this like rich theory actually I thought nicely aligned with the map model and the map model principles around uh, subjective or, or personal experiences like pain. So people always ask me about an activism. And I think I always dread it because it's such a tricky topic to to talk about. But if you're interested, I'm happy to talk a little bit about that at a really high level, if you think listeners might be interested, because it does align with, I think, a whole person approach to...
0: I would love to hear. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great.
3: Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I, I say something different every time. So we'll see how coherent this is. So like activism, or like uh, some people call it like an inactive approach, this like rapidly evolving movement in philosophy and cognitive science and really the aims to better understand experience. And as I already mentioned, like a lot of the ideas stemming from activism aligns with some of the principles that Tim already outlined So for context, it is like built on over a a century of theory, and it was formally proposed around 1991. And the general idea is that we enact or construct experience through interacting with our environment. And this environment is both physical and social. From an inactive perspective, if we want to understand experience... We can't just only look into the brain or the nervous system. That stuff's important, but we also need to consider the whole person. So that includes their history, their concerns, their expectations, their narrative, which I think is nicely outlined in the MAP model that Tim and others have put forward. And we need to consider all this, which an activist really emphasized, in relation to a person's interactions with their environment's what really attracted me initially to this is that for me, at least, and for other people who kind of working in this area, is it moves us towards a map model, like a very comprehensive or, or big picture approach to understanding experiences like pain. The theory is quite technical. It is quite detailed. And I think it's interesting because folks have been using all these kind of like different concepts within an activism to try to overcome some of those limitations that I talked about with the biopsychosocial model. So you can think of in activism as a theory, like it's starting to fill in some of the gaps that we see in the biopsychosocial models. It's kind of like extending or building on the biopsychosocial model. That's really high level. There's many concepts like the topic of affordances that are built into the biopsychosocial model, which I think adds a lot of nuance and it's potentially inspire people to think and and act in new ways, uh, maybe moving beyond the the biopsychosocial model but it's really tricky to talk about this stuff in like a really short form, like podcast. It it ends up looking like somebody said the other day, old wine in a new bottle, just when we're giving a a brief description. But there is this like rich theoretical foundation to draw from, which which I find entertaining and interesting and keeps me going for sure. Yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that.
0: Is it correct to say inactivism considers the environment, how the person interacts with environment, but the biopsychosocial model Almost sort of like just look at the person themselves, so their biology and their cycle and then how they socialize with social community. Is that correct to
3: say? I'm not quite so sure, because I think like if we look really carefully at some of the work in the realm of the biopsychosocial model, I think George Engel was quite attuned to social processes, environmental considerations. What I think is a challenge, though, is he kind of just said like, hey, there's all these factors that are somehow connected and he proposed things like a vertical hierarchy like in one of his, his famous papers it's like you have society up high you reduce it down to the person with an experience you reduce that down to like molecules and cells and and i think he just kind of said like these systems are connected and somehow information flows across them and i i think that vagueness leads into some of those misapplications. For example, people looking at this vertical hierarchy and saying, well, well, you can just take that one level, the person with an experience, and just reduce it down to neural networks in the brain or or something like that. And that'll be the key to understanding subjective experience. Whereas an active theory, people have actually flipped it. They said, we're not talking about vertical hierarchies. We're working maybe on a more horizontal plane where these different biopsychosocial factors Co determine each other. They're inseparable. You can't just reduce one to the other. So I think that's where it starts to add some nuance, but it gets really tricky philosophically. I think having these theoretical considerations, diving in a bit deeper, I think can have real world impact in terms of like the research we do, the way that we treat patients. Same goes with the MAP model. Like I think that has like real world applications to help us prevent some of those issues that we've historically seen when we rely on theory that's a bit too vague, if that makes sense.
1: Mm. Jennifer, do you want to continue? Yeah, sure. So I think it's more like the pieces of a larger system. We are inseparable from the world. And with this inactive approach, we can develop a more comprehensive perspective to understand this process. So thank you for those insights. And we really need to appreciate the first-person experience of pain and consider the dynamic relation between person and the environment. So you just mentioned the word affordance. Can you explain what is affordance? Is that a subjective or objective concept?
3: This is another topic that I'm like, oh no. like. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe just give us a definition of it.
3: Yeah, it's it's a super interesting concept, but it's super tricky. It was developed by an ecological psychologist. So by the name of James J. Gibson, a lot of intro psych classes, you'll hear his name and even the concept of affordances sometimes. So that concept has been further developed since he introduced it many, many years ago. But if we're going to give it kind of like a definition, so affordances are like perceived opportunities for action that the environment offers a person based on things like the state of their body and other factors like their cultural background, their interests, their specific or unique concerns. So really, one way to think about it is like the concept gets at how we experience the world and ourselves in terms of what we can do in the environment. So stairs afford climbing, for example, to people who perceive them as climbable. So what I think is is interesting is the concept actually gets us looking at the whole person in interaction with the environment. I guess if we're looping that back to like the misapplications of the biopsychosocial model, it can potentially help us if we take this concept quite serious to avoid some of the fragmentation that we see when applying the biopsychosocial model. So we can't really use that concept of affordances in like a coherent way without considering like the relation or the interplay between a person and their environment. I think you also, if I heard it right, I think you asked about, is it a subjective or objective concept, which I think is like a really super interesting question. And that was something that James Gibson really struggled with. And he said, it really cuts across this subjective-objective dichotomy. And he said, that's really what makes it such a useful concept. So maybe some other examples could help. So like for most people in Canada, like a chair affords sitting due to the fit between a person's anatomy, and the shape of a chair, as well as the social conventions to to sit. But a person with acute low back pain, for example, may not actually perceive the chair as sittable. So in terms of applications, if we're talking about pain, pain can actually change a person's affordances or what they perceive as action possibilities. Unfortunately, pain can often close down our perceived action possibilities. So A lot of work that I've been involved with, some philosophers and other clinician researchers talk about maybe a function of most treatments is really to, in many ways, open up action possibilities for individuals. So that could be done through intervening at the level of the body, or it could be done through working with beliefs and understandings about pain, or it could be changing the environment or shaping the environment as a way to indirectly change a person's behavior and experiences—really, kind of weird concept uh, to to navigate. <laughs> but I think it does have some like helpful, practical applications if we take it quite serious, and potentially can help avoid some of those issues that I had flagged.
0: When I encountered the concept of affordance, it, it quite fascinates me because it puts together a lot of things that you said. It it cuts through the dichotomies of subjective and objective, and it just encapsulates person and uh, environmental interactions in all in one concept. I am trying to understand a little more with this concept in mind, how, how do we apply this concept in physiotherapy with patients?
3: I don't think you would need to ever talk about affordances or the theory with, with patients. I think that's like technical kind of background stuff that could just get us thinking in, in new ways and, and potentially interacting with patients in new ways. And I think Clinicians, especially physiotherapists, already inherently, kind of like implicitly work with affordances. So they're often using certain cues or changing the environment or or using manual therapy or, or exercise to help open up action opportunities. What I think is like not always realized, though, is how there's many different ways that we can shape a person's affordances. Even just like the way that we talk about pain, the way we explain pain could potentially either open up or close down affordances or these action opportunities. So we see a lot of, if we're talking, circling back to those kind of biopsychosocial misapplications, we see once again, people wanting to take like a very kind of comprehensive approach, but we can default down to like, oh, well, it's just your, your core muscles, or it's just this one joint, or it's just this one muscle. Almost treating like the body, like broken machine that needs to be somehow fixed. Or treating the body like it's almost like fragile. And I think some of that wording and explanations may unintentionally close down uh, action opportunities. Maybe people are worried, and rightly so, with some explanation they're, they're given to engage in exercise, engage in activity. So sometimes people can be given mixed messages. Pain-related explanation may be giving a message that, well, no, movement is bad you're going to damage yourself but then you're also in this same appointment talking about exercise and movement so you're kind of like shutting down action possibilities while trying to open them up at the same time a theory like this what we've argued in some papers is it can help us be a bit more consistent maybe in the messaging that we give and trying to figure out what are we trying to do are we trying to shut down actions or are we trying to open them up and how are we actually trying to do that what ways are we trying to do that so that's just a couple of thoughts that come to mind yeah
0: That's really cool. I mean, to think about affordances and action opportunities as we approach providing physical therapy sessions to a patient, ultimately, it's a very functional approach. Like we're thinking, how do we expand their, let's say, movement vocabulary or ways of moving and do what they want to do in life? How Does that address, let's say, for example, they're subjectively experiencing pain that prevents them from accessing these action opportunities?
3: I've written a bit about it with work led by Sabrina Konings and also Daniela Vaz, like pain will often shut down action opportunities. And that serves a a very kind of functional role. But when we're talking about more in the long run, that's where we can start to run into issues. So maybe it is now safe for a person to engage in in activity to start to do meaningful activities, but they're still avoiding those activities. Maybe that's because of messages from a clinician or messages from friends or family or things, a news article that they read. So a clinician, their role might be to like start to signpost some activities that might be worth exploring and using techniques to start to, to move a person towards engaging in these activities. So a concept like affordances aligns very nicely with Graded exposure techniques, like it aligns with that uh, graded exercise stuff that that clinicians already use. It's just some like additional kind of theoretical foundation to understand what some of those treatments might be ultimately trying to do and potentially help understand some mechanisms as well. Yeah,
0: it's helpful to provide that theoretical foundation and that nuance to why we're doing graded movement exposures, why we're doing these approaches. Now we're talking really about how communication from the clinician aspect affect affordances, affect action opportunities. And in your work, you also talked a bit about metaphor. Do you want to just go ahead and introduce briefly what metaphor means and how it's applied in clinical situations?
3: Yeah, for sure. As a starting point, metaphor is like a tool to understand one kind of thing or experience in terms of another. So it's like figurative language that can be used to map something more abstract or unfamiliar onto something that's a bit more concrete and well-known. So for example, like chronic pain is a never-ending marathon. So pain being something more abstract being compared to a marathon, which is something a bit more concrete or potentially understandable. I guess other examples, people may not even realize metaphors like Patient may say their pain is stabbing or burning. Like they're not literally being stabbed or burned. These are just metaphors to communicate what that experience is like. So, a lot of my work argued that everybody uses metaphor and figurative language, and many others have argued that. And we use it whether we realize it or not. So, there's no kind of escaping it. And it serves a variety of purposes if we're talking about pain care. So, as I already mentioned, patients use metaphors to express their experience of pain and clinicians can then use that to aid their decision-making. So I mentioned the example like burning, that could be an indicator, a potential indicator of neuropathic pain. So it can be useful in, in that sense, but also clinicians use metaphors and analogies, figurative language to often explain pain to their patients. So using it as a way to help them better understand their experience. So I guess in essence, like metaphor has this kind of like bi-directional purpose. Patients use it to clinicians and clinicians use it to patients. And a lot of my work has just argued that we should be quite careful, all clinicians, in, in terms of the metaphors we use if we are happen to be explaining pain, because that can potentially shape people's experiences for better or for worse or shape their their perceived action opportunities if we're using that concept of affordances for better or for worse.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So what types of metaphors coming from the clinicians can have a counterproductive effect?
3: I think that's tricky because I don't think metaphors inherently are good or bad. I think it depends on the meaning that the person assigns to it. So for one person might be a very empowering explanation or metaphor might be really Destructive or disempowering to another person. So I think it gets really tricky. And like what I've written about a little bit is some metaphors, though, seem to be more prone to mislead patients or be more prone to like shut down action opportunities. So I mentioned previously almost like treating the body like a machine, like this needs to be fixed. When it comes to chronic pain, that can be especially problematic and may present like a more kind of like unidimensional perspective on pain and a unidimensional perspective in terms of treatment, which potentially can be problematic versus other metaphors or explanations that may better reflect the complex and multidimensional nature of pain and may actually open up more treatment opportunities and, and more activities. So, Tim, we've never talked about metaphor or we've never talked about this like language if you don't mind me asking like what are your thoughts on like the use of metaphor in pain management like do you talk about that at all in terms of like explaining pain with students
2: yeah i don't spend a lot of time with it but i think what strikes me as interesting about metaphor is that it's pointing to something right it's kind of using a communication device that points somewhere else and in many ways, that's what all of our pain assessments about. And again, coming back to the idea of that that pain experience being hidden to us as a clinician or as a researcher, as anybody who's not having that experience. And so, we need to use devices that point to it because we can't immediately touch it, we can't immediately observe it. And so, I think that there is a richness in metaphor in doing that. And I'm not sure. In my mind, I'm kind of tossing and turning whether this is an example of a metaphor or not, but. What comes to mind when we talk about this is is like an eleven on ten rating on pain, and so this is something that that we've all probably come across. We you know ask somebody to rate their pain, they say eleven on ten, and I'm kind of ready to think about that almost as a metaphor. And I think that usually, what often for me that that's communicating is is hey, you know, I'm just feeling completely overwhelmed by this, and I need some help. And that's kind of how I see an eleven on ten often as what it's trying to communicate. And I think. The trouble can come from a clinician taking that very literally and not seeing it as a metaphor, and not seeing it as a communication strategy that solicits help. And they can kind of get stuck in that. That does not make sense. You're not using a scale. This is not a number that makes sense. Uh, like this is supposed to be the highest pain you could imagine. How could it be 11? So I think that, again, where I see problems is not just how we are using metaphor, but maybe how we're interpreting our patient's language and maybe not being able to kind of read between the lines a little bit and see what they're pointing towards in their language. And so I think that maybe potentially missing opportunities to see that they need help, missing ways in which, you know, we we can kind of better support them.
0: It's another area that fascinates me how metaphors are so inherent in our communication. It's good to take a moment to think about the positive and negative, the placebo and nocebo effects that we are providing in our care? And how do we take a step back and understand what patients are communicating?
2: Yeah, I think just to go further than that, like, I think, you know, what I wouldn't want to encourage clinicians to do is to kind of be constantly screening, filtering our language, because I think that's really going to trip us up. And I think that you know, language isn't just about the words we use. It's also about the body language we have and, you know, how we're presenting. And so I think trying to tune into that. So, so I think it is good to be mindful of our language, be purposeful about it, but also kind of like reading the room in terms of the person in front of us and trying to build a connection and being honest if there's something that you're, they're saying you don't understand it, probing, understanding, or if there's something that you don't know how to say, then also, hey, like, I, I don't know how to express this, but this is what's on my mind you know, how does this sit with you? So again, it comes back to that recognizing that personhood of the patient that we're working with, and trying to use different strategies to connect with that person.
1: It's really a person centric approach. Yeah, I, I just feel like communication is like an art. And words can only seek to symbolize what you know, but can sometimes confuse what you know. So that's why experience and feelings about the same may really represent what you'll actually know about that thing.
2: Yeah, and I I like to think of pain management as like a a science-informed art.
0: When it comes to providing metaphors, now we're talking about coming from the clinician side of things, common metaphors used are like, oh, the muscle feels like ropey and naughty," and that can come across to the patient in many different ways. I feel like it's almost like we need to provide a bit more nuance when we give a metaphor. We are saying that the metaphor is meant to describe this aspect of what I'm seeing and feeling, and not that aspect. For example, I'm describing a sensation; it feels on the surface. I'm not describing the anatomical structure that's being actually becoming a robot, becoming tied up would it be a better more nuanced way of communication if we were to ever use metaphors
2: i think in that example i think what i'd want to think about is why why would i be communicating this in the first place so is there a purpose to me commenting on what i'm feeling and what i'm palpating and maybe there is maybe that's integral to the treatment and the patient understanding their condition and getting better great But maybe there isn't, and maybe that is something that that is less important to their treatment. So I think maybe just as a first filter is just kind of trying to add that purpose to why making a comment, if, if that makes sense
3: you can't just choose to use metaphors or not. The human language is built on a foundation of metaphors. Like Everybody uses them, whether they realize it or not. So inherently, even clinicians that say they don't use metaphors, their clinical appointments are littered with, they just don't know it. And I think the tricky thing is though, is when we use these things, there's room for misinterpretation. So clinician may be saying one thing and a patient interprets that in a very literal sense or in a way that the clinician didn't anticipate. So I think if we're more knowledgeable about that, we can potentially try to get on the same page as the patient, check for their understanding. So classic examples of that are like the teach back technique. If you're you're trying to educate somebody on something, asking them if they're going to tell their family or a member or a friend about their pain, how would they describe it? And they may tell you something that's very different Than what you just just told them may provide an opportunity to get on the same page, to have some sort of common understanding. So I think with like the explain pain movement, like Mosley and Butler, like a lot of people have jumped on all these different metaphors that are in these books. And I think that's really valuable. But at the same time, there can be opportunities for confusion from the patient perspective and and misinterpretation that doesn't align with what the clinician was aiming for. So uh, we need to be considerate of those types of things. Mm. Yeah.
0: So I think many of our listeners are indeed already very mindful of language when they talk to patients. How do one improve on themselves apart from being mindful, actually do what we want to do, which is we're coming from a good intention. We don't want to mislead patients, but maybe we do do that. What be an advice we can give?
2: I would say get feedback in any and all ways that you can. Easiest and best is going to be from the patient directly. So that could be, you know, having somebody else do some exit kind of surveys, have a conversation with them, you know, have a a trusted colleague or somebody who you maybe think has really good communication skills, have have them observe you, clinical encounter. I think there are courses and training opportunities that are more and more kind of directly focused on communication and kind of excelling and enhancing that some of which are focused directly on pain, others are more kind of broad. So I think starting with the feedback bit, and then maybe kind of beyond that, some specialized training. But I think it is good investment, and and something that is so difficult because you know communication is it's always in context, it's always with the person that you're talking to. So it's hard to say that you're always a good communicator or you're always a bad communicator. And so I think that uh, that there again, there's some humility about communication, and you can always have to restart with a new patient in a way.
0: That's very true. Very fair to say to adapt communication to. Each and every single patient, we we do have to communicate a little bit differently because everyone is different. Everyone thinks differently. Everyone has different personalities, different stories and baggages that they bring to the treatment room.
3: Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll add one comment. It's Just the conversation got me thinking of like... I think the author was Karen Barker or Karen Baker in 2009 published a paper talking about common words that are used in by rehab professionals so like words like chronic or neurologic or instability these different words and asked lay people like patients how they understood these terms that clinicians commonly used and oftentimes they understood them in very very different ways way unintended ways that clinician, they weren't wanting them to understand it in that way. So it shows how easily these words that we often use in clinics can, can be misinterpreted in negative ways. So I think Tim brings up that good, good point of like getting feedback. If you are using these more technical terms, diagnostic labels, getting feedback on how they understand those terms and labels and working the best you can to get on, on the same page.
0: Hmm. That study is worthy to read. We'll link that in the episode description.
1: I just want to highlight that multi dimensional metaphors may also help both clinicians and patients better appreciate the role that the physical and social environment has in shaping their pain experiences.
3: Yeah, so you mentioned like multi dimensional metaphors. I would consider that I mentioned Explain Pain, like the famous book 2003, I think that was their initial one. They give examples like, the bathtub filling up with all these pain related factors like different biopsychosocial factors and people use like I see it all the time like the cup analogy it's the same type of thing where they talk about all these pain related factors mixing interacting and then if the cup overflows or the bathtub overflows that's supposed to represent the experience of pain and I think if I understand what you were saying like that is an example of like a multidimensional metaphor so instead of just blaming a single muscle or joint. You're considering all these different factors across the biopsychosocial domains working together.
0: Would the affordance-based therapy more so an approach to what we do with the patient and what we're talking about here, the metaphors and, and all of that be more like the how do we educate and how do we communicate? which both come to under the umbrella of whole person care because whole person care do involve education communication and that treatment but is it is it right to think about it in that way
3: yeah i I just see like some of this like theory and like some of these concepts as like guiding your approach to care guiding like a a whole person or a person-centered approach to care so i should make it clear too i mentioned inactivism affordances these are like super kind of technical concepts and theory, mostly talked about by philosophers, so I wouldn't ever expect people to be talking to patients about this type of stuff. But like, for people that are interested, potentially exploring some of that theory may move them closer to a more comprehensive kind of person-centered approach to care for people that are interested in theory like that.
1: Okay, so let's move on to a discussion on the topic of suffering. Suffering holds a central place in the field of pain, but compared to the pain, nociception, pain behavior, it seems like suffering is the least developed. So is there a definition of this concept? How can we distinguish between pain and suffering? And why is that important?
2: Yeah, I can can jump in on that. If you go to PubMed or Google Scholar and you type in pain-related suffering, you'll get probably like tens of thousands of hits. Usually what you'll read in those papers is like in the introduction, they'll be like, this many people suffer with pain. And it's like, so therefore we're going to do this. Usually when we're reading about or framing our clinical interventions, we're framing them as alleviating suffering. But I think the irony there is, is that we don't have a definition of suffering. We've actually spent very, very little time, despite talking about the word suffering and kind of claiming that we're anchoring everything to that. We spend very, very little time actually kind of thinking about what that means and thinking about what suffering actually is and are we actually doing anything about it? And I think we see this in society. So if if you kind of like look around our priorities in pain management, we're kind of maybe missing the mark. So you think about something like the opioid crisis and part of what got us into that arguably is having a very, very narrow look on pain intensity so that the pain is a fifth vital sign campaign, for instance. There's some links with that leading us to the over overuse of opioids in a problematic way. And part of that is not seeing the person in their context and seeing what's really challenging to them, what's really disrupted in their life. And what I would think of is part of that is not seeing the suffering that they're experiencing. And I think that issue of, of kind of narrowing down an experience to something like a zero to 10 rating, you know, kind of illustrates how pain can differ from suffering. So Peter can build on this, but but he does a great job talking about, you know, you can be in pain and not be suffering necessarily. But when you're suffering, there's like an inherent kind of disruption to your life there. And it's something that is disruptive uh, by definition to your life. And so maybe Peter can talk a little bit more about differences between pain and suffering.
3: Yeah, I guess commonalities, as a starting the work with Tim and, and we work with a variety of others. We've looked at both pain and suffering as these subjective or personal experiences. And they both also have this negative, effective or emotional valence. But where it starts to get a bit different is we propose in some of our work is that suffering involves disruption to one's sense of self. So a simple way that I kind of understand that is you can have pain that isn't that bothersome or isn't that disruptive, but you can't really have suffering that isn't bothersome or isn't disruptive. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, You suffer because your life, as, as Tim mentioned, or your sense of self has been disrupted in some significant way. So that leads in, like, I don't know why I have this affinity to all these thorny concepts and topics, but like the sense of what is a self. So that leads us to that question of like, how do we define that? How do we consider that? Lots of debates in the literature in this area. Working with Tim, like we've been exploring, well, how can we understand the self? Maybe it has these different aspects that that can be disrupted in different ways. Our work's been exploring how maybe there's different types of suffering or wording we use in some of our papers is like, maybe there's different modes of suffering, depending on what aspect of the self is disrupted. So that's the type of work that we've been navigating We're I think far from consensus on like a definition of suffering or pain related suffering. But I think we've been moving a lot closer and flagging a lot of the issues with kind of historically popular concepts of suffering that have bit overly narrow. And so we work to expand that work a bit. Yeah.
1: So pain, suffering are interrelated, but distinct experiences. I'm also wondering is suffering a choice or not, because some people always say everything is a choice, then is it also a choice that we can make?
3: Tim, do you want to go first on this one? This is a, an interesting one.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's a useful way to think about suffering. I think that the kind of adage "pain is is unavoidable, suffering is optional" or something like this.
3: Yeah, it's a version. Yeah,
2: I think what that does is it kind of trivializes the suffering that people can experience uh, with pain, and it kind of implies that there's this switch inside us that we can just if we flip it, then all of a sudden we're not suffering anymore. And I think that there is you know, each of us have agency around how we manage an experience of pain. And that agency can alleviate suffering for sure, but it's not so simple as flipping a switch. And so I think that there's a real journey involved in kind of alleviating suffering. And that is sometimes one that's very personal and sometimes one that, that is also kind of reliant on, on other people and getting help from them as well.
3: I think I'm on the same page, Tim. As soon as I kind of see some of those famous sayings, I think some stem from like Buddhist philosophy as well. Like I have issue; it's kind of partly true, but it's also, I think, problematic in a variety of ways. I think maybe I can connect some of the things that we've already talked about with when responding to your question. So I mentioned a lot about like these philosophical concepts, these frameworks that we might use to understand pain. We could potentially use it to understand suffering as well. So if you're considering, for example, this inactive theory, that really emphasizes person's interaction with their environment, I think you can easily then start to see some of the potential limitations of just saying it's just a choice, suffering is just a choice. So people may be suffering for really good reasons, because of the environment they're in, because of the actions of other people. And so to say it's a choice is like potentially can zone in on just the individual and, and saying, well, you can just make a decision or not. But If we zoom out even further, though, we may better understand maybe they're working against all these other factors, doing their best, and they can't actually get out of that, don't have the capacity to get out of that suffering experience. So considering that we may actually want not want to intervene at the level of the individual, we may actually want to consider changing the environment or the social structure or systemic related changes to potentially help alleviate suffering. So that's just some random thoughts off the top of my head about connecting some of these ideas, but I'm sure there's more to be said there.
2: Just to kind of summarize a little bit, like I think what's probably more helpful from a clinical standpoint, rather than thinking about it as a choice, Think about how we can create agency, how we can build autonomy, and in terms of helping somebody alleviate their own suffering, and how can we provide care directly to that. So I think that's probably just a more pragmatic, helpful way of thinking about it rather than it's a choice that the person's making.
1: How we can create agency, does that also equal to inactivism?
3: Oh, man, that's yeah, an activist theory, like they talk a lot about agency and autonomy. Those are central concepts built in. So there's whole special issues in journals that talk about the concepts of agency and autonomy within an activism. But uh, for people that are interested, there is some really interesting connections between those concepts. So maybe I'll leave it at that. Yeah.
1: You just mentioned that disruption to one's sense of self may be an integral part of suffering. So how can we understand the self? There might be narrative self and minimal self. Can you elaborate more about this?
3: yeah i think you are mentioned like some of our work where we talk about those different facets of the self so i don't know if i mentioned that explicitly so some of our work has used an influential framework to understand the self so from the philosopher and cognitive scientist sean gallagher so he talks about what you just mentioned the minimal self and the narrative self so they're they're kind of technical terms but an easy way that i understand them is the minimal self is like our kind of in the moment experiences that we have that kind of shape our stream of consciousness. Whereas the narrative self is our reflections on those experiences and a kind of an identity or a life story that we piece together over time. So that can involve things like important roles or relationships, goals. So when I mentioned like disruption to different aspects of the self, you may have disruption to your regular kind of stream of consciousness, this like altered in the moment experiences, or you may actually have disruption to that narrative self. So there may be a loss or impact to your uh, valued roles or relationships, or your goals may be impacted. So some of our work has been suggesting that considering these things is is important, because it potentially could point to Different types of treatment, tailored treatment, depending on what kind of aspects of the self are disrupted. So those are some of the general ideas. Tim, I don't know if you want to build on that. It's a yeah, a bit technical with some of the theory, but yeah, there are clinical implications. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think maybe just to give an example. Minimal self, you could think about that as everything that would be in the world and and realm of a baby's experiences. And then, if you think about disruption of minimal self, you think about things that would make a baby cry really hard, and those being kind of disruptive to that minimal self experience of a baby. And then, narrative self, you add that layer of things that may, in addition to what might make a baby cry, might make us cry. So, you know, losing a job, for instance, that's going to be maybe a threat to our identity disruptive of our life in a way, and that might make us cry in a way that that would never make a baby cry. And that's kind of a bit of a difference between the narrative self-experience, which is not accessible to a baby, versus a minimal self-experience, which is.
1: So considering the diverse interpretations of the concept of self, it is clear that we need to broaden our traditional understanding. So besides the narrative self and minimal self, as you mentioned, do you think there are other important categories of self that should be acknowledged and explored?
3: you got all the, the real heavy questions today. I, I, I like this. <laughs> Tim and I haven't really talked about this. Like we've had a lot of talks about selfhood and different ways or types of suffering. Like I've been really interested in the selfhood literature. And like, I think the, the minimal self and the narrative self as concepts really encompass a lot. And I think that's why they're quite useful concepts. But there are a variety of other theories out there and other concepts and or different aspects of the self or different types of self. For example, like some people talk about the extended self, which might not be fully captured by minimal self or narrative self. So what they mean by that is physical aspects or physical items like our clothes or our house or housing, for example, can be a part of our identity or sense of self. So if you take those things away or disrupt them in in some way, you can fundamentally disrupt a person's sense of self. So I think of like examples where a patient goes into a hospital, their clothes are taken, they're put in a hospital gown. There's reports that that can radically change how they view themselves and change their sense of self. So there's certain other ways of understanding the self. If you really focus on that, that's one example where it may lead you to kind of look for these types of things or understand other types of suffering. But that's just a random example off the top of my head. Tim, I don't know if you want to add on that.
2: Yeah, I think I don't have anything to add. I think it'd be worth talking through what minimal self disruption in relation to pain, what narrative self disruption in relation to pain, what those can look like. So we've been doing a bunch of qualitative interviews on those. And, and I think that'd be interesting to talk about, but I think the other point to add is to not see these as two kind of binaries that can like exist independent of each other. These are, I guess, similar to everything else we've been talking about, are very much interrelated and intertwined. And, and that's what we're finding more and more with our research that we're doing is that one feeds into the other and, and you can very much have both at the same time as well. That said, I, I do think there is value in trying to to think about what these things look like for somebody who's living with pain, you know, and then broadly think about what we can do about that as clinicians.
0: Tim, where you're heading, I was thinking of going to the same direction. With this understanding of the self and disruption of the self as suffering, how does pain affect that? How do they relate to each other or not relate with each other?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I think in the literature, there's more existing literature related to disruption of the narrative self currently. And that's in some ways, I think that's easy to think about. So if you think about, okay, all of a sudden, you know, you're living with chronic pain, it's going to be likely massively disruptive to the things that are important to you. So I might not be able to do my job in the way that I would like to. I might not be able to be a partner to a loved one in the way that I want to, a a parent, a friend, a family member. So all of these things that kind of go into making us us, like go into making our identity, it's not hard to imagine how pain can disrupt that. And so when we're thinking about narrative self-disruption, that's the type of disruption that we're talking about. And so we can talk about how to assess that in the clinic, but that's kind of a a little bit of a snapshot of narrative self-disruption. And then for minimal self-disruption, there's a lot less literature on this, and we're kind of really excited to be hopefully getting a paper out soon that really kind of focuses on pain-related minimal self-disruption. And this is a bit of a horrible analogy to use, but one that I think is apt is, is experiences of torture, is the kind of literature that's out there that I think kind of captures minimal self-disruption. And what what's really been fascinating about doing interviews with people about these kind of minimal self experiences. So this is like in the moment experiences and really kind of when pain is at its worst and and most overwhelming. And you get people to talk in depth about this. And often they can, you know, make comparisons to things like torture. Like it feels like I'm trapped. It feels like there's nothing outside of the experience of pain. I can't think I can't operate my phone. I can't talk to somebody if somebody was there. So it's like you're in this little void of a universe and there's nothing but that pain. And all of those things that make up you, those those pieces of your identity are somehow inaccessible. They're kind of lost to you. And this is a lot of, of what we're finding in our interviews of how people describe this kind of minimal self-experience. It's a lot like kind of you know physical torture, which is a horrible thing to think about.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Is it true that if your minimal self is disrupted, your narrative self will also be disrupted?
2: That's a good question. I would say if it's not disrupted, kind of in an extreme sense, it's probably not accessible to you, if that makes sense. What we're finding is that people can't kind of situate themselves in narrative self when they're in this kind of like extreme minimal self-disruption. And I don't want to exaggerate, like, so certainly not everybody's pain experience is like being tortured, but I think it's helpful to understand what the extremes look like in order to see what the more modest examples are. And so I think that, you know, there, there is this kind of like messy middle idea. We're really finding in our interviews and that I think is an interesting idea to focus on where there's a little bit of that minimal self-disruption, a little bit of that narrative self-disruption. And so maybe that is, you know, really just feeling overwhelmed, frazzled kind of in the moment, like you can't think straight, you can't kind of do things that you want to do and being probably frustrated about all of the narrative aspects of your pain as well as, as kind of some of the characteristics that we've seen a little bit.
3: One technical piece, the value of this expanded notion of suffering that we've been moving forward is that it directly challenges some existing work that's out there. So, for example, Eric Cassell largely endorsed this idea. He doesn't use this wording, but like he says suffering essentially is narrative self disruption. And he says that you need to be able to kind of like reflect on your life story and how it's your life has been impacted in these different ways in order to suffer. So he explicitly says uh, infants then can't suffer, or certain animals can't suffer. But but we've argued maybe that's a bit too uh, a narrow of a framing. So we know based on theoretical literature and empirical literature, adult humans have both this minimal aspect of self, so our immediate experiences, but also a narrative sense of self. And I think Kim nicely highlighted the interface between the two. So you need to already have uh, in the moment experience in order to actually then reflect on that experience and develop a narrative and life story. So it shows how the minimal self is almost like a foundation for the narrative self. But it gets interesting when you talk about disruption to these different aspects. So you can have these really disruptive in the moment experiences. And then if we zoom out on a wider timeframe, people can then reflect on those experiences those experiences can become a part of their life story. They may view themselves differently. Their relationships may be impacted. They may avoid certain interactions. They may isolate themselves. And so I think it shows this really complicated mix between these different disruptions if we start to expand the time window that we're looking at. So essentially, the the idea is that we can consider over time the different ways that pain is impacting the person's life and, and figuring out like which treatments may actually be optimal at a given period of time. So a treatment for disruption to the minimal self may look very different than treatment for targeting primarily disruption to a narrative aspect of self.
0: We started with this topic talking about, oh, we want to provide relief to pain-related suffering, but we don't really understand what suffering is. In one of your papers, I remember a Venn diagram of two circles, the pain circle and the suffering circle, and how were they overlap? Is pain-related suffering, which means there is some types of pain that doesn't constitute suffering, and a lot of types of suffering doesn't constitute pain experience. Is our work here targeting different selves in our treatment approach trying to move someone from that overlapping circle of pain-related suffering over to like just pain and not suffering?
2: That's a good question. So I think it can be. So if you're thinking about a chronic pain condition where your hope is to not eliminate the pain, so let's say you're working with somebody who has fibromyalgia and there's not a real strong evidence base that you're going to cure fibromyalgia with your treatment. So it, it probably shouldn't be your explicit goal with treatment. So effectively what you're trying to do there is you're trying to help that person live with their pain better. And probably for that person, an important piece of that will be to suffer less with their pain. So I have pain, but I'm not suffering. And this is, you know, if you talk to people who are living with pain, I hate to use the word successfully, But that's the word that's coming to mind. And if you talk to folks that have been living with pain and have learned to live with it well from their assessment, they probably won't use the word suffering. They say, yes, I have pain, but I'm not suffering. And I think there's an important role there that we can play in assisting that. And of course, if you can take away the pain, awesome, (laughs) power to you. But we probably don't, you know, we'd have fewer podcasts about simple exercise. So I hadn't thought about that Venn diagram and the shifting over that, that way. But I think you're right. I think that is part of our treatment.
0: You want to elaborate a little bit of how targeting different selves and different treatment approaches can facilitate that?
2: Yeah, we'd both be happy to, with the caveat this is all speculative <laughs> at this stage. So I think you, you know, basically the state of this literature is is really new, where really we've just kind of done a summary of the literature, and then we've collected a bunch of data. We're analyzing that. We're trying to get that out now. So we have a bunch of ideas, but I just want to add the context that that these are our ideas right now and they still need to be vetted and further developed. But I think what's interesting about these different modes of suffering, so the minimal self, narrative self disruptions, I think that you can imagine them as lining up better or worse with different treatments. And so for instance, if you have minimal self disruption, and again, that's just kind of where you're just really kind of in the moment feeling overwhelmed and you can't think straight and you're really not yourself in kind of every sense of the word. You can think of a long list of things that you're not going to be receptive to. You're not going to be receptive to in that state, any kind of explanation about how things are working about your pain, any kind of in-depth, you know, this is how you do this exercise to kind of get to this. And so I think we can think about that mode of suffering and think about as physios or other clinicians, what scope of our interventions might not be accessible in that particular moment. And certainly things that involve a lot of cognitive processing, I would assume that they really just would not be accessible for that patient in that state. And then you can think about what could bring somebody out of that state. That could be in reduction strategies, things that maybe we haven't been talking about as recently in some of the emphasis in in the literature, could be some strategies to kind of bring somebody out of that state or giving them some more agency to kind of control that state. And then if you turn to narrative self-disruption, I think that there are some treatments out there that do potentially engage, and this has to be backed up with some data, obviously. But if you look at treatments like ACT, so acceptance and commitment therapy, this kind of starts to engage with kind of bigger ideas about yourself, what's most important to you, you know, what you want to prioritize. I think this is a type of intervention that engages well with that narrative selfhood and things that maybe we haven't been talking as much about historically in uh, particularly the psychological interventions uh, related to pain. And I think that there's potential to go further with those types of treatments as well.
3: You did a great summary of that and you pointed to the different clinical implications. What excites me about it, it demonstrates how use of theory can then be integrated into research and guide understandings and treatments so I think you were originally Jennifer when you're sending some ideas things to talk about introductions with a New year's wish or something <laughs> along those lines and I was like a new year's wish I'm like I haven't I don't have one so I don't know what to say but uh, as I'm thinking here maybe one of my New year's wishes would be like if we're talking about the field of pain would be like a greater appreciation for theory also a greater appreciation for qualitative, methods and lived experience. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll leave it at that.
2: Yeah. And just maybe to build on these treatments a little bit, I think what's important here is to think about these different modes of suffering and think about the full team that can be involved in pain interventions. And so if you're thinking about a physio in particular, like putting on that primary care management hat, Um, And so if I'm seeing a patient come into clinic and I think, you know, I've kind of have this new understanding of minimal self-disruption and I'm seeing this patient like, wow, like this person is just completely overwhelmed by their pain. I'm probably going to be thinking about how I can engage some other team members in that care and recognizing that it's not just going to be me. Likewise, in the other extreme, in terms of that narrative self-extreme, like probably going to be reaching out to somebody who has mental health expertise, but you know, barring those extremes, there's probably going to be a little bit of middle ground and something as simple as just recognizing, hey, my patient's in a flare up right now, their pain's really high, they look like they're really overwhelmed, maybe not the best day to sit down and do a whole bunch of in-depth education about how pain works, because it's completely possible that they're not going to be processing what I'm saying at this particular moment. It's just a little bit of a simple example that I could imagine.
0: I really appreciate this discussion. And I do certainly share your wish, Peter, that theory can be more appreciated because that's what drives our practice. I'm glad that we can have this discussion today in this episode. As we end off the interview, how would our audience follow your work or your lab's work and learn more about this topic?
3: For me personally, I sometimes use Twitter or X or whatever it's called. (laughs) Now these days, I have a website linked on there, which has links to like my research gate and stuff like that. Tim, where can folks learn about your lab and research?
2: Yeah, not very easily, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, You can go to my website, which is a little bit modest, let's say on the Miguel page And then probably just kind of looking at my work and our work through PubMed or Google Scholar would be the best strategies as I'm not as active on social media these days. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, we can definitely link uh, any links you want to provide in the episode description.
1: Yeah, I just want to say I'm also very thankful for for this thought-provoking discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Really appreciate, once again, the invite. For context, for listeners that are still joining us it's friday 9 40 p.m my time we're in my time zone so anything that's incoherent or hard to follow i'll blame it on that um
2: <laughs> yeah this is my first kind of academic conversation after two weeks of holiday so i'll use that as an excuse as well but it's been a real pleasure and it's been great chatting with you and of course uh, great working with peter and the rest of our team at miguel
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of PainCast on whole person care, metaphors, and suffering. I hope you find the discussion valuable. To continue to support PainCast as more students get involved and produce high-quality episodes, please consider subscribing and reading PainCast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with your network. Stay tuned for more episodes from Tiffany and the students on pain and therapy.